Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Roz Taylor. For many of us, the warm light of the fridge and the miracle of the food delivery app were the only consolations of the pandemic. Some of us caught COVID and lost our sense of smell and taste, but that didn't stop people in England from putting on an average of three kilos during the pandemic. Now we're living in a harsh new reality of intermittently empty supermarket shelves and farms that are struggling to adapt to Brexit. Plus the possibility of a tax on sugar and salt to get us to stop gorging on junk. It's sobering. With me to talk about food and how we make it are two experts on the subject. Golly Tice is finishing her PhD at the Centre for Food and Activity Research at the University of Cambridge. Welcome to the bunker, Dolly. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. Sarah K. Mock is a rural and agriculture journalist and author of Farm and Other F-Words who lives near Washington, D.C. Hello, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. Sarah, to jump straight in, one of the abiding beliefs of the middle classes is that you can improve the world by being picky about what you consume. You've associated Michael Pollan, the author, with this idea that we can make a difference to things like animal welfare and the environment, low agricultural wages, through judicious choices and where we shop. Tell us the problem with that. The core of the problem with the kind of conscious consumerism is just that consumers really don't have the power to do really anything very meaningful. I think part of that, the issue there is that, you know, being able to go into the grocery store and have a significant level of knowledge about everything that you're buying and understanding not only, you know, what each item is and how it was produced and what each step it took along its value chain and whether or not it moved ethically or not, I think is basically impossible because of the the sheer, you know, complexity of our food system. But on the other side of that, there's also, you know, it's in the best interests of of food companies to make that as difficult to do as possible. Um, and then, you know, I think the the third element of that challenge is just that in a lot of ways that the whole idea of conscious consumerism has been boiled down to getting you to buy something, right? Getting you to buy something a little bit more expensive, getting you to buy something that comes in a glass bottle instead of a plastic bottle, um, getting you to buy, you know, an alternative meat instead of animal protein on the idea that it's better for the environment. It's better for your health. It's better for, you know, some outcome, but we often assume that just because one bad outcome has been avoided or eliminated, then that means that, that all the outcomes or all the everything that went into a product is good. But that's not necessarily the case, right? We can talk about issuing animal pro- proteins uh, in exchange for a soy protein as a climate decision, but monoculture soybean production is also very bad for the environment. Um, we can talk about trade-offs there. We can talk about, you know, whether animal protein raising cattle is worse maybe than soybean production. But, you know, I think it would be really hard to make that argument that those are legitimate and, and um, you know, verifiable improvements. And so I think it's just, you know, coming back to, we talk about this with plastic a lot, but it's true in agriculture as well. Consumers, your individual choice has very little to do with how the system works and, you know, where you can intercede to make changes in the system is really at the policy level, at the level of organizations that are making decisions about what is stocked on your grocery store shelves, um, how the food system works itself. Um, You know, you buying one less item at the grocery store is not going to change what the grocery store stocks, but a grocery store is able, is capable of changing what they stock. So, you know, I think Conscious consumerism makes us feel like we have a lot of power as an idea, but in reality, we don't. We'll talk about meat production and veganism and issues like that a bit later on. But 
let's speak a little about the Biden administration and what their approach to food policy and has has been so far and farms. What what has Joe Biden done that's that's been notable? We haven't seen as much as we might have thought um, coming out of the Biden administration so far. You know, one of the big things has just been the Biden administration has been really focused on the pandemic, but we haven't seen him, you know, take or his administration take as much action around making sure that workers in meatpacking plants are staying safe, for example, or that farm workers are, you know, being protected during the, the broader climate emergency that we're experiencing uh, the bigger things that we've seen is a really intense focus on antitrust and competition, uh, which would affect meatpacking probably. Though I will say, for the last like forty years or so, there's been a lot of political focus on the fact that you know eighty percent of U.S. meatpacking is controlled by four companies, two of which are Brazilian-owned. Um, but it's easy to talk and a lot harder to actually do something. We haven't actually seen the Biden administration's like real actionable plan about how they're going to take on, you know, consolidation and concentration in the food system, which has led to immense vulnerabilities and lack of resiliency during the pandemic and has read, led to shortages that you mentioned in the intro. Um, and also has put, you know, vulnerable meatpacking workers in an incredibly hard place, led to hundreds of deaths, thousands of sickenings there. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, otherwise the Biden administration has been very focused on climate. Their biggest change on that end is, you know, really the Biden administration has been focused on putting farmers at the center of, you know, helping be the core, a core driver of the U.S.'s change in climate and, um, you know, sequestering carbon through regenerative farming practices. Again, there's been a little bit of talk about carbon markets. There's been talk about um you know, other ways to transition the food system or traditional transition or agricultural system to make it less climate, you know, make it more of a climate solution than a climate problem. But in terms of action, we haven't really seen much there. So it's hard to say what the Biden administration's strategy on the food system is at this point. I'm talking to you, of course, on the day that the IPCC report came out on climate change, which to anyone who's been watching recent news reports about what's happening around the world will perhaps not be a surprise, but we've seen huge, huge wildfires in the US, for example. What impact do you think this kind of this climate emergency is going to have on US agriculture? I know it's very hard to predict because we don't know where they necessarily where they might break out, but are there areas where we're already beginning to see crop failures and problems as a result of the climate emergency? Absolutely. I would say at every level of the system. So, you know, at the lowest level, when we look at wildfires right now, um, yeah, it's crazy that at the moment that the IPCC's latest report comes out, California is currently experiencing 107 individual fires and its largest fire on record, the Dixie Fire. Um, Farm workers are out harvesting. They're picking fruit in the middle of you know, air that is impossible to breathe, basically. So, you know, we can talk about how the labor force is being impacted in agriculture just around forest fires. We can talk about how dams and reservoirs that are used to uh, re- to irrigate agricultural crops in California are empty, are literally empty. Um, you know, the Orville uh, Dam in California, which is has a hydroelectric power generator, actually had to, the hydroelectric generator was turned off for the first time in like 70 years today. 
because there's just not enough water in the dam to run it, which is a true indictment of just like things are. An expert said, you know, it's code red for humanity, maybe at the moment right now. And in California, it certainly is. It certainly is that, you know, we've seen increased flooding in the Midwest due to, you know, the way we've altered the landscape and the more intense storms. We've seen the impacts of hurricanes throughout the Southeast in the United States. Um, And then we can also talk about, you know, the impacts that are really hard to see. But we've seen science about the fact that, you know, increased carbon in the atmosphere actually makes crops, our traditional food crops, wheat, corn, less nutritious. Uh, You know, there are fewer micronutrients in the plants because carbon interferes with the way that changing levels of carbon interfere with the way plants operate. So literally from like the giant landscape level and the human level all the way down to the the kind of genetic makeup and basic operation of plants is being altered by climate change and ecosystems organisms are not able to catch up not able to respond and yeah we're only going to see more complicated more complex uh, impacts of that going forward Dolly, let's talk a bit about the British perspective. I noticed the other week you tweeted quite a pious statement that Marks and Spencer had made about how they were supporting their customers to make healthy choices. And alongside that, you tweeted a pic of an M&S checkout queue and it was just lined with bags of sweets. It's fascinating how making healthy choices has become a corporate get-out clause, if you like, doesn't it? Shoving all the responsibility onto the consumer. Absolutely. I mean, the the kind of fallacy of the concept of choice is that, you know, even when you literally have a choice in front of you in a supermarket, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only thing um, influencing how you then make decisions as a result of that. So a major problem today is that for most of us, being healthy is actually really hard, which is sort of nuts. (laughs) And the healthy choices just aren't the easiest. They're not necessarily the most convenient. They're not necessarily the most affordable and they're not necessarily the most appealing. And so, as I say, the, the, you know, even when you're presented with a choice in a supermarket, we know with the way that our brains work that we're not even able to take in the sheer volume of choice that is on offer or options that are on offer in a supermarket. Our brains can't conceive that amount. And that's why... You know, there's evidence to show that people on average go um, down exactly the same aisles in a supermarket they do every single time. You know, there are whole aisles that some of us have never entered into. So this is the kind of fallacy around the concept of choice, which is so easy to say that people have a choice. Uh, we sort of realize how hard it is in, in, in reality. And, and that can be, for example, a busy parent might have such a tight budget that they, they can't afford for their kids not to eat the food that they buy. So they buy the stuff that they will definitely eat. Or it might be that the unhealthy options are simply more convenient, you know, the, or the first thing that comes to our mind and most appealing because they're the ones that are so heavily marketed and advertised um so and when there are delicious options that are convenient too they tend to be way more expensive and our unit has done the research and we know that healthy food tend to cost tends to cost more per calorie um or it may be a social reason it may be that the cheap chicken shop is where all our mates hang out so that's where we'll tend to eat and uh, i just actually had a mother telling me the other day that her son just said that the chicken shop is where he hangs out and his and he's an athlete you know and his diet is actually getting affected by the fact that the social place is this cheap chicken shop um so you name it there are numerous influences on our food choices and unless we understand that we need to 
not only make it easier, but make sure that the healthy option is the most affordable, most convenient, most appealing, then that is the only way that we're really going to see the kind of change that we so desperately need. I remember even noticing when I was back in the days when I was single and I did, I went to Sainsbury's and it was before food deliveries were a thing, that eating healthily, it was more difficult because you had to carry a lot more heavy food home. And if you just brought crisps or, you know, ready meals, it was lighter than if you brought tins and cabbages and whatever. And I remember making those choices based on what I had to heave home in my rucksack. And even then it was quite, it was more difficult. Totally. What, tell us about the pandemic a bit and what effect it's had on our diets. Because for a while, food seemed like the only pleasure in life that you could rely on um, at some mm. points in this pandemic. But that has led to some again, bad impacts on our diets, hasn't it? Yeah, it's really, it's sort of hard to say because the evidence is still quite new and emerging with regards to what effect the pandemic has had on our diets uh, specifically. But, you know, the first thing to say is that the pandemic has shown how vulnerable a poor diet makes us. You know, the huge reason we fared in the UK so badly globally is because it's so hard to enjoy a healthy diet here. And, people as a result are in a much more vulnerable state. And I don't actually think most people realise that four out of the top five risk factors for healthy years, loss to death, disability and disease are due to diet. Four out of the top five, the fifth being tobacco. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, our diets are absolutely the reason why we are in a poor state of health and there is such pressure on the NHS and all of the other things. You know, the, f- the fact that food is making us sick and killing us should raise serious alarm bells. And and yes, you've alluded to some of the kind of issues around, um, you know, there's been apparent weight gain with portions of the population over lockdown and Public Health England conducted a survey of about 5,000 people and found that, More than 40% of adults had gained weight during the pandemic due to things like snacking and comfort eating and boredom, probably, or proximity to the fridge. You know, it's not rocket science. There's a reason why we would all be doing that. So so it will be interesting. And activity levels, I understand, were also down and drinking was up for a, a significant proportion. So, yeah, it does appear to be that the pandemic has also been linked with that. And it shouldn't be that you know, eating when you say it's a pleasure and all of that. It shouldn't be that it's not a pleasure. Of course, it should be a pleasure. Of course, eating should be enjoyable and sociable and, you know, not considered some restrictive diet at all. It's just that that deliciousness should be healthy and that should be easy. Well, one of the individuals who's suggesting an intervention at the moment is Henry Dimbleby, or I think he's behind the Leon healthy-ish fast food chain and he brought out a report recently the national food strategy and he's suggesting more sugar and salt taxes now it probably goes without saying that those will be unpopular but would they work do you think yeah, it's really interesting. So this um, tax proposal is is similar in the design and intention as the soft drinks industry levy or the sugar tax, as lots of people um, call it. And um, a lot of people, when the when the soft drinks industry levy was being designed or being talked about, you know, the idea that Britain was going to introduce a, a sugar tax. There were a lot of talks about it, you know, being obviously on a single nutrient and it was going to harm the poorest, the worst, because it would hike the prices up, et cetera, et cetera. When in fact, the way that it's worked has been because it's about the manufacturers, producers 
themselves changing products, reformulating it, taking the sugar out of products to just make it easy for people. And actually, the cost hasn't been handed over in the way that was anticipated. And in fact, what the companies have done to manage that is they've diversified. A lot of the companies have diversified their products so that the emphasis is now on producing, you know, no sugar alternatives, the soft drinks. So this new salt and sugar tax that's being proposed in the National Food Strategy is designed with exactly the same intention. So where certain products, it's very difficult to reformulate, whether that's biscuits, cakes or whatever, because whenever you take the sugar out, you have to increase the fat and fat and sugar, all of that kind of stuff, the feasible stuff. Where that's not possible, then there will be increases in the price. And in order to make sure that it's not the poorest that are lumped with that um, increase in in terms of their, their weekly food budgets, Uh, They are making sure that any money that is raised as a result of this tax goes towards funding programs that make it easier for low income families to eat well. So the Healthy Start scheme, um, there are all sorts of programs around uh, school meals, holiday activities, all of that kind of stuff. Um, So really, this if you read the National Food Strategy recommendation on this, they have absolutely made sure that this isn't going to land in the poorest um, families' pockets um, in the worst way. Do you think we're going to have to adjust our diet in Britain as well because of Brexit? I mean, in the short term, obviously, there are shortages of especially fresh produce because there's a shortage of lorry drivers, among other things, that's that's slowing down imports. But in the longer term, do you think our diet will change as a result of it? Yeah, I mean, again, a fascinating area. And this is also touched upon in the in the national food strategy. Um, But, you know, half of all food consumed in the UK is imported, you know, so as a nation, we're heavily dependent on imports. And that means that the health and sustainability of our food trade deals are really, really important. And and I'm sure a lot of people listening will have will have seen what the discussion has been had in terms of the uh, trade deals. Um, But there have also been a lot of research about the potential health consequences of both the benefit um, of post kind of Brexit Britain and the detrimental impact that some of the trade deals are causing. And I'll start on the trade deals that the the Global Britain strategy has celebrated a lot of trade agreements with countries like the US, Australia, Canada, that include large exporters of food, which are neither healthy nor sustainable. And it's a fantastic example of disconnected policy. And uh, I would really encourage anyone listening to read Dr. Kelly Parsons' work on policy connectedness, food policy connectedness, because it really demonstrates that, that a very sort of it's like a quick win on the trade front can actually be a really uh, potentially harmful um, outcome or have a harmful outcome with regards to health in the longer term. But on the positive front, there are huge opportunities in post-Brexit freedoms over UK agricultural policy. And it was interesting listening to Sarah, you talking about some of the issues related to this. But, you know, if we can use this to help British farmers benefit from producing healthier food more sustainably, then that would be brilliant. And again, there are huge amounts of policy recommendations contained within the National Food Strategy that touch uh, upon this. Sarah, you grew up on a farm in Wyoming. Um, and it was, I think, a partly, it wasn't just arable farm, it was livestock as well. Yes. Do you think we're still going to be eating meat in 20 years time, in uh, certainly in Britain and America? Or do you think that we'll have got to a stage where we can replace it by other protein-rich things, whether those perhaps insects or um, other or vegetables, or whether they're essentially fake lab- lab-grown meats? 
Uh, yes, I do think we will still be eating meat in 20 years. I think in part because 20 years is a, a really short period of time, all things considered. I think there is tremendous opportunity with alternative proteins to replace a lot that we do. I think, for example, like, you know, if we think of the whole like whey protein industry uh, of, of shakes and powders and ways that people introduce more protein into their diet, will it be a, tra- a fundamental transformation for people to, to stop eating soy-based whey protein and start eating cricket-based whey protein powders? I don't think there will be like a meaningful difference there. So I think there's a lot of opportunity. Uh, I do like impossible, what is happening with impossible burger, what's happening with beyond meat. Uh, you know, we've seen those introduced at, you know, restaurants like Burger King and people have loved them. People like them. People are interested in exploring them. But when we look at the trends on the grocery side, people are not replacing meat consumption with alternative protein consumption. They're buying both. They think of them as different products. They're not substitutes for each other. They're separate. And in a very similar way that alternative dairy products are not uh, really a substitute, it would seem, from from purchasing trends that uh, to milk products, people are buying both. They use them for different things and they like both products. You know, my hope or what I think is kind of the, the ideal situation based on the trends that are happening right now is that we are raising meat in a fundamentally different way. When we look at regenerative ag, ag practices, it's actually really important to have animals integrated into those systems, right? When we can look at grazing and how, you know, having ungulates on prairie is a, a key part of that ecosystem. But I think we are at a point in the climate crisis and in a lot of other you know, aspects where we're thinking really critically about confined animal feeding operations for one don't make sense really anymore. They don't make sense for communities. They don't make sense for really anyone but maximum efficiency style capitalists. Uh, so, you know, I think we will be re- continue rethinking, continue uh, altering the way that we raise protein. And I think we'll diversify that protein a lot. You know, I think especially in the United States, cattle are not an indigenous species. And I think there are species like bison that make a lot more sense in our landscape. So maybe transitioning away from chicken, pork, beef are the only options all the time to a much wider, vaster array. Seafood is another great example where, you know, there's like a white fish and there's salmon, and those are the two fish that people eat most of the time. But the ocean has, you know, a bounteous amount of other species that are also edible that that people can use that can be fished as, um, you know, fishing grounds change. So I think protein will still be used. I hope people are eating less, you know, I think as it gets more expensive, as the way that we farm it changes, that would be advantageous for our health that would be advantageous for the climate but i don't see the trend is not there to say that alternative proteins are overtaking meat or are significantly challenging animal-based protein at the moment that's really interesting because i i really thought that they were essentially substituting but i'm obviously wrong about that before you both go um i want to ask you about notwithstanding you mentioned earlier the problems with with idea that consumer choice can make a huge difference but what steps can we take um, as individuals what is the most important step that we could take as an individual to help improve the quality of our food chain or improve the quality of our diet um dolly what what would you nominate for that 
Oh, am I allowed to pick a target audience? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would really just um, kind of speak to the policymakers in the world. And, you know, uh, my research looks at how a lot of the um, problems that we have in relation to this to this whole agenda, if we can call it sort of healthy planet, healthy people agenda, um, is, is often due to just delay after delay of the implementation of policies. So if I could say one thing, I would say let's celebrate um, implementation more. And, and that actually goes for people beyond just policymakers because there's a lot of you know feedback loops which are negative when, pe- when governments start doing stuff. There's a lot of celebration around another new idea being announced. And I think if we can shift that balance so that we really celebrate when government is actually progressing policy implementation as um as sexy as that sounds <laughs> um, but you know policy implementation policy evaluation that is what's going to lead us to the kind of change that we need when it comes to government policy yeah. uh, obviously uh, all lots of sectors involved in that so if we can celebrate that and not just celebrate shiny new idea as an announcement then that would be fabulous do things don't just talk about them sarah how about you yeah well since dolly already took the i would I'm right there with policy, policy, policy is really the, the intersection point that matters the most. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people live in democracies. We can contact our, our lawmakers and make sure that they understand what's important to us. But I would say, on the other hand, you know, as consumers, what should consumers be thinking about right now? I would say understand and talk about and, and you know, don't participate in conscious consumerism as much as you can. You know, when you're at the grocery store and you have that moment where you're like, oh my gosh, you know, there's, I'm on a budget. I have kids that I have to figure out how to get them to eat and I'm having a hard time, but I feel like I should buy this $4 cheese because of the label and because it's supposed to be sustainable. It's supposed to be all these things, but there's this $2 cheese right here and I don't know what to do. Remember that like realistically, both of those cheeses are probably made by the same company, even if they're different brands. The difference between them is probably much more insignificant. Marketing is like a key thing of what's happening. It's okay to buy the foods and have the diet that you need based on your income level, based on your priorities, based on your family, based on your preferences. Don't feel guilty about everything. Recognize that that's marketing. Be willing to have those conversations. If you want to buy the $4 cheese and that makes you feel good and you like the taste and it fits into your lifestyle, great. If that $4 cheese is going to impoverish you or put you in a position that is untenable, that is okay too. Yeah, don't beat yourself up. Sarah and Dolly, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Sarah's book, Farm and Other F-Words, is out now. Where should British readers buy it, Sarah? I think you'd rather they didn't go to Amazon. (laughs) Yeah, Um, you can buy it uh, basically anywhere books are sold online. You can also buy it uh, on Kobu. You can buy the ebook there. Bookshop.com is a great one that I like to plug, but you can also order it through your local independent bookstore. Fantastic. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can support the show on Patreon too. We'd love it if you did. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker was presented by Ros Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sokhanevich, and theme music was from Kenny Dickinson. Audio production came from me, Robin Lebo, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.